Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we're lucky enough to be on the UNLV campus talking to the new acting president of UNLV. Joining me will be Michelle Rindels to ask all the important questions. As usual, we'll close out the podcast with some to and fro and some issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. You can find us all over the place, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and elsewhere. Go on there, go on that platform that you like, subscribe, rate us, rate us highly, please, and tell everybody that you know. Marta Miana actually has a background in psychology, which may prepare her well for being the president of UNLV. She's the acting president. Uh, she made her name here uh, at, the, at the Honors College, and she has gracefully accepted our invitation to be on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, John. So some might say that uh, you actually need therapy to have agreed uh, to, do, to do this job. T- tell us tell us a little bit, uh, and I'll just start it off in general. Uh, uh, what, what do you see as the biggest challenge for UNLV right now as you take the helm? You've been uh, at the helm for about seven weeks. Well, I think the biggest challenge for UNLV is to continue growing Uh, to resource that growth and to keep the momentum that we've had now for a few years, which I think is pretty impressive. When you say the momentum and, and, and that it's impressive, there was there was quite this imbroglio that, that led to you becoming a, a, the acting president with, with with this back and forth with the UNLV Foundation and the donor community. It's something that every president of every university has to deal with, right? How do you get that, that out of the headlines, so to speak, and, and get back to uh, the so-called impressive momentum? How do you do that? Well, I think it's already happened. I think you focus on why what what we do here which is to educate students, to further the research agenda. And uh, a university is much bigger than any one individual. And as long as you have the stability of that vision and that mission, um, I think the momentum continues. Before I let Michelle jump in, in here, um, why, why did you think you were the right person for this job at this time, and why did you want to do it? I wouldn't say I was the only person for this job at this time, um, but when I was approached, I thought I could help. I've been here for 21 years. I love this place. I've worked at many different levels of the university, and I'm very focused on student success and very faculty identified, and so I thought I could help. Okay, Michelle. So um, we've talked about kind of healing the tension that there has been between maybe the donor community and the university itself. What have you been doing kind of on a day-to-day basis to address that? Well, I've been meeting with just about everyone I can meet with and focusing on the fact that I really do truly believe that everybody has the same goal. We may have our differences, but everybody has the same goal of uh, helping UNLV succeed. And if you all share that goal, then there's a place to work from. Um, And so I've been, I would say, reminding everyone that that is the goal and that's what we're here to do. Um, And that becomes really evident at the beginning of the semester when you see the students coming back and the faculty coming back and, and the energy of that. So I'm just refocusing everything on our purpose, which is to help students succeed and to generate knowledge. What's your sense on how that process of repairing hurt feelings uh, is going? Are we at the point where people are are back in the fold or is there still a ways to go? I think it's going really well. I've had very positive conversations with 
the regents. I've had very positive conversations with donors. And um, I think, again, by refocusing everyone on the center of what we do, I'm feeling a lot of progress. You talked about um, a, a focus on students, and you have been for the past is six years mm-hmm. at the helm of the Honors College. Maybe yes. some, some of our folks don't know quite about your legacy, really, at the Honors College, but you helped, was it double or triple the enrollment? Tripled the enrollment, and um, I'm very proud of the fact that also doubled the number of minority students in the Honors College. So when I took um, over... Uh, in 2012, it was it was really not doing very well. It was a very small college. Nobody knew about it. And it was almost as if as an institution, we didn't have the confidence to go out there and get the best and the brightest to come here, to stay here. So I decided to go out there um, with that confidence because I didn't have to put it on. I really do believe in this place. And when you do that and when you set high expectations for students, they rise to them. And it's just an amazing, it's an amazing amazing college. We have some of the best students in the country. What do you have to do to get and keep those, you know, really the, the best and the brightest, the gifted and talented students in our state um, to, to go to UNLV, the Honors mm-hmm. College, and to stay there and be happy there? I mean, what, what did it take for you to accomplish that? I would say it took showing them what's already happening at UNLV. We have amazing research, amazing faculty, and, and really like putting that out there in a way that w- that we often as an institution have not. Um, and then the other thing that's key is to create a community so that these students are making each other better every day and also to focus on grooming them because although they're, they're smart kids and they're already accomplished, um, in order to get them to that level where they can apply for a Rhodes Scholarship or a Truman or a Goldwater, um, they require the kind of grooming that those prestige universities back east do all the time and that we had not done enough of. And so we started doing that, and the results were clear. We, In th- a span of three years, we won uh, a Goldwater. We got a Goldwater winner, two Truman awardees, and we had a Rhodes finalist, um, which, you know, had not happened for a very long time. You know, it's interesting because you're bringing up uh, some true success stories, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned. You said you have some of the best students in the country. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I take that at face value. As Michelle pointed out, what you've done at the Honors College uh, has been remarkable. But image is actually important, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and hopefully it comports with reality, but especially when it comes to a university, right? When I first came here 30-plus years ago, people uh, said UNLV, and they thought of one thing. They thought of the running rebels. That, that, that was it. Nobody thought there was a real university there, right? And through the years, uh, th- there have been people People who have been in your position included who have been fighting against uh, that that perception and, and even the in-state perception that UNLV is kind of the stepsister to UNR. It's been there longer, more accomplished. It's it's higher in the in in, in the top tier schools ratings, whatever. You you have to. The reason that that's important is not just because you want people to talk well. That's how you attract great faculty and great students. And, and so, how do you, how do you how do you continue that if there is any momentum? The stories that you just told probably most people don't even know, mm-hmm. right? They don't even know we had a Rhodes right. finalist. Wow, yeah, that's impressive. And, and and these other award winners. How do you do that? That's that's tough. It is tough. Uh, you have to work at it, and you have to work really hard. But the the truth of the matter is that when you do, it does work. Uh, and the Honors College shows it. Um, so it's, it's, 
it really is about self-promotion, but not self-promotion in some kind of fake slogany way. We are doing incredible things here, um, but we haven't been as good as other universities at putting that out uh, with the fanfare that we need to do. Um, and so that's what I did as honors dean. That's what I did as a psychology professor. And that's what I intend to do as a university president. And 20 years ago when I came and I would go on conferences for my research, people would say, Las Vegas has a university. I got to tell you, that doesn't happen anymore. Really? It doesn't happen anymore. Our, I might say that our reputation nationally might be even higher than locally because you know how things are everything that's familiar you devalue and you kind of um, always uh, underestimate what you have and overestimate what you don't uh, we actually have a pretty good reputation out there in the world and nobody ever says to me when I go on my conference trips um, UNLV what's that but but I mean this still has to be done kind of piece by piece, mm -hmm. block by block, right? You mentioned some of the things. Yes. I didn't even mention Boyd, which has done phenomenal things in just phenomenal. a few years of existence in, in in terms of getting up to the higher echelons uh, uh, in the country. You have to attract the best faculty, and they mm -hmm. and they've made some name choices at Boyd. Uh, th that's how you get other faculty to come, right? As success right. begets uh, th these kinds of things. But you got to pay them, and mm -hmm. it's almost like a bidding war now, isn't it? You know what, though? Faculty are, you know, no, nobody goes into academia to make a gazillion dollars. So although you do have to pay and you do have to compensate fairly, if your institution has an energy level, I, I, when I came here, when I interviewed here, I almost canceled it the night before. I already had three offers in hand. Um, and I came here and I thought, okay, I'll go. The energy at this place is what made me come here. The, the, the feeling that somehow here I could make anything happen because I wasn't fighting for elbow space as you might be doing in a more prestigious, you know, older university. So faculty, uh, if they were driven by money, they wouldn't be in academia. So of course we want to pay well and we want to compensate well and we want to be competitive. Um, but, but faculty are also drawn to the spirit of an institution and I think our spirit is amazing. It was 20 years ago. It's more now. And look at what we've done in 20 years. We've got a med school. We've got a law school. We've got a dental school. That's an incredibly short time in which to accomplish all of that. Um, so it's that kind of energy that I think um, can make this an incredibly uh, attractive place for fantastic faculty. You're talking about the spirit of the uh -huh. school. Um, Obviously, it's it's very predominantly commuter. Um, do we need to change anything about that to to kind of get students more attached to the school, or, or is there something we need to do to further build up uh, student life and community here at UNLV? I definitely think that engaging students in a community is incredibly important, and I don't think that we will uh, see a rise in our retention and graduation rates if we don't do that. Students have to feel they belong. At the same time, you have to be realistic in that we're going to be primarily a commuter university for, for a long time, and maybe forever, and that's okay. You can have a commuter university where students are also engaged. So I think what we have to do at UNLV is instead of uh, bemoaning certain conditions, say, given these conditions... How do we move the needle? Given these conditions, and there's nothing wrong with those conditions, so we have a lot of kids that live in the city and come in and then go home for dinner. That's okay too. Um, but how do we engage the students we have? How 
we, we're here to serve this state and the students of this city. So um, as much as we welcome students internationally and from across the country, um, how do we make the students we have engaged um, with our university? It seemed like you had also talked in a, in a Las Vegas Sun interview about getting UNLV out into the community as much as maybe bringing those students in. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there's the Harry Reid Research Park and some other campuses that are kind of in the works. What else does it take to kind of UNLV, this community, to really, truly embrace UNLV in a lot of aspects? We have to be at the table. We have to be at the table with nonprofits. We have to be at the table with uh, organizations engaged in economic development. We have to be on people's mind and and the community on our mind. So what I'd like to see, this is not just about student internships, I mean, all of which is terrific, but, but UNLV has to be sitting at a bunch of tables in this community to know what's going on, to weigh in, and also to, to learn, to see how we can help. Um, so that is what I'd love to see, is that kind of infusion of UNLV into all things Las Vegas. And that's already happened a lot more again than when I came 20 years ago. Um, but we have a lot of work to do there. <laughs> We're coming up on a legislative session pretty soon, so I wanted to ask you a few questions on those uh, topics. Um, first of all, you know, they're studying right now college affordability. Um, I'm not sure exactly when the study is going to be ready, but they're working on another look at, at college affordability. From your vantage point, uh, do you see obvious things that need to be changed to ensure that our students can still afford uh, their public schools? We remain a very affordable university. So in 2014, the Institute on um, College Affordability and Access um, found an average student debt um, in seven out of 10 students had like $28,000 at large public universities. And, and we came in at 18. We're still affordable. Having said that, I have sat across students who struggle. Um, and and the way that, that I dealt with that in the Honors College um, was to fundraise as much as possible for scholarships. So, for example, 15% of our tuition gets put aside for access uh, scholarships. So we are still very affordable, but I do not minimize the fact that it's still very difficult for a lot of low-income students to go to college. And what we have to do is everything in our power, because there isn't enough you know, state money, um, to raise as much money as possible to help students. Because that'll be the difference between them staying or leaving, or even if they stay, between them doing great if they, and, and not. Um, so um, we have to put a lot of effort into that because that is a huge part of the story of retention and completion. Mm -hmm. The legislature last session um, put, put $25 million towards the med school. Um, you know, we'd, we'd been hearing for a while that some of the fundraising was not quite up to, you know, the goals or what had been uh, projected. Uh, what's your confidence level that that, that building is going to uh, be completed and that fundraising could pick up? And, and are you going to ask the legislature for additional help on that? I am very hopeful. And uh, I think we're going to have some interesting news um, on this um, next week. Oh, so you, stay tuned. You, 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 should probably, you should make that news right now. This is the perfect place to do it. 
This is the perfect place. To do. Um, so you're getting a big you're getting a big donation next week. Is no, no, no. It's not about a donation. It's about um, uh, we've developed an approach to be able to to start building. Now I do want to make it clear we do have a fully state funded medical school that's running really well. What we're talking about right now is a building so that we could actually increase the size. Uh, of the entering classes. But I do want to make it clear that we have a fully functional, fully state-funded medical school at the moment that we're very, very proud of. Um, In terms of expanding to this um, other building, um, we are not where we want to be on the fundraising, but we are somewhere where we're going to be able to hopefully get going soon given certain approvals that are imminent. So you don't want to tell us exactly what's happened or give us a little bit more information? Well, what we want to do is we want to start building with what we've got because we can. And um, I, I, I can't give more information until, uh, you know, it requires certain approvals. And I don't want to get ahead. Approvals of those. by the state, by the region, by something the state. along those by the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So you're, you're are, you, are you talking about like money being released by the state? No, or, no, or no. The state board of examiners is the, no, just not, letting us just letting us start uh, where we are. I, I feel like we're playing twenty questions here. Yeah. And she just I know, but you know what? I, I I'm just not. Uh, <laughs> I'm I, I not, understand. I don't I want. I can't get ahead uh, of certain. But, but you're saying there's some, there, This is a major announcement, and it's coming soon. I'm I'm saying that we are going to make. We are going to have some progress. In my estimation, I'm very optimistic. We're going to have progress toward the beginning of this other building soon. Well, let me just, since you brought up the medical school, just ask one other thing, uh, Michelle. Uh, uh, you know, it's not just about the money. There's been some questions about how much money there actually is to do. Uh, what, what you're suggesting. There, there have been real questions about whether the founding dean is the person to lead this into the future. There have been some real questions about the the administration inside uh, the medical school. The Review Journal had a, what I thought was a fairly devastating piece about a prominent person who works at the medical school and having a contract that didn't seem to be too many checks and balances. Listen, you're a university president. You can't go over every line item. I get all that. But you have to be concerned about that kind of thing, especially since you're just talking about the image of the university. Mm-hmm. You, you don't like this kind of stuff out there. Well, you know, I'm a new president, and the position I'm in now is assessing um, all of those things. I'm in learning mode and in reviewing mode and in assessing mode. Um, so that's what I'm doing. Um, Are you going into politics, too? Because that was quite the, <laughs> that was quite the political answer. No, it's, but it's the true answer, John. It really is the true answer. I, I'm in my seventh week. I'm not going to make pronouncements uh, well, is, is it you know. safe to say that you're looking into all of this, that you're concerned I've, about it? I'm I'm looking into the functioning of every aspect of the university and trying to maximize, you know, uh, that that functioning and making sure that we're going in the right direction and things are are going the way they should. Of course. Michelle, if, if I remember correctly, Chancellor Riley, when he was on uh, this podcast, suggested that maybe the founding dean would be leaving relatively soon. Do you think that's true? I have not had that discussion. Okay. There's been a movement afoot to uh, change the way we govern uh, and she and and, and the regent system. Uh, The legislators have discussed this in the past. Um, I think even the previous president, Len Jessup, had said, you know, we need to relook at this governance system where we have the regents have a lot of power um, over our system. You said you've been meeting with all the regents. Of course. Um, have, Have you completed... All your meetings at, at this point? Yet? <laughs> Pretty much, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, not that you only do it once. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
What's your sense? I mean, is that a priority for you to change the way we govern NG? That's not the role of a sitting president. Uh, I understand there are people looking into that, and that's that's fine. But um, but no sitting president is going to do that. You're running your university under the structure that you're under, um, and that's what I'm doing. Have you had, uh, you mentioned meeting with all the regions. I think that'll probably take like two months. There's like 300 of them, aren't there, or something. And I think there's, what are there, 13 now? 13. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lucky 13 or an unlucky? You don't, you don't have to answer that one. Uh, let, let's talk about the conver- the other kinds of conversations you have to have. You're talking to faculty, I'm sure, about what what their issues are. And you know some of them having just come from the faculty world. You're, you're talking to students, I'm sure, uh, uh, at, at times. You probably walk on the campus and just talk to them. But the other group. Uh, that that is almost consistently involved in controversy around the university are the the donors. And some of the donors were very upset about what happened to Len Jessup. Others, I think, were were said, okay, it's time for a change. Uh, How are you you conducting yourself there? Are you you feeling some of them out saying, listen, it's a new world now. Uh, Let's put the past behind us. Uh, We still want your support and we want you to help us find my support. Absolutely. I I, I mean, it's one of the first things that I did was reach out. I mean, these are incredible people who have done... um, an incredible amount for UNLV in terms of contributing to our scholarships, to our programs. These are good, good people. Um, and uh, and I have good relationships with them, knew many of them well before I took this position, and I'm continuing to do that and, again, talk about what our university and our community needs. Have you talked to Chris Engelstad, who was, who was the most high-profile donor and who said essentially she was done being a donor if Len Jessup was gone? Have you talked to her? I have talked to her and will be talking to her more. Do you think she'll come back into the fold? Are you optimistic? I'm not going to speak for her, but I, I know that Chris cares a lot about UNLV and cares a lot about this community. Okay. Well, uh, Michelle, if you're going to let me keep asking questions, you, <laughs> you, you, you know I will. I know I will do. So let's let's talk a little bit more. Uh, any any university has to have a combination of, of, of private and public funding to, to, to be really successful. Uh, I've talked to so many too many uh, university presidents o- o- over the years, and they, and they all used to brag about, look, we got to 85 percent this year to be fully funded, but based on the formula. And you would think, why are you bragging about getting to 85 percent? Uh, you want to. You don't want to have to increase tuition too much. That's always the the, the push and pull, right? You want to get more money from uh, the the, uh, the the state. Have you been meeting with legislators and talking with them about higher education funding? Because I've covered way too many sessions. Uh, Michelle's covered a few. Higher education funding always seems to be a, a less less of a priority than lower education funding for a lot of obvious reasons and not so obvious reasons. Have you been talking to legislators? Because Michelle's right. She says it's it's not that. Far away that the legislature is going to be meeting and making some really important decisions right. that could affect UNLV. Absolutely, and and I've started that process, but but the 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 legislative priorities are are really set by Enshi for all of the institutions within Enshi. So there's a process by which we put those together. Um, but um, it's it's an NC, it's primarily an NC so you, effort. Well, you're, you're talking about a hierarchy now, and this has also been an issue over uh-huh. the years. Go, should you go through the chancellor's office? Can you lobby legislators by yourself? 
Let's talk about your interactions with Tom Riley. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've talked to him a few times since you, and in your seven-week tenure, uh, and he was, again, he he made some very strong comments about your predecessor, but you want the chancellor on board for what UNLV needs, right? Absolutely. And and, and so you're saying going through the NSHE process. Uh, what are the general conversations? You talk to your, your, your other, uh, uh, your colleagues who are presidents of other uh, institutions. What, what are the priorities going into the 2019 session that you, that you think your colleagues and you agree on? Right. Well, for this session, our priority is basically to resource our continuing growth. So um, the, the budget request from NSHE to the state will be voted on next week. Um, and, of course, we have our priorities, our UNLV priorities within that budget. Uh, this has yet to be approved. It will be uh, voted on. Um, but our priorities have been to resource this continuing growth, to support the medical school, the continuing uh, of the medical school, to um, expand our summer offerings so that we can help students get through their course of study um, in a quicker way. So there's no like real special ask. It's, it's, um, it's basically all of the initiatives that were growing. Uh, Healthy Nevada, our Healthy Nevada initiative, which is intended to uh, grow healthcare related, not med school, but healthcare related disciplines and products and services. Um, those are the priorities within that, uh, that and she budget that relate to UNLV. Should I ask a final question, Michelle? You have yeah, one? I think we're... We're almost there. Let me yeah. just ask one <laughs> other question then. Um, this has also gone on for way too long, the, the whole North-South rivalry, the UNR versus UNLV. And I'm not talking about sports. Uh, I'm talking <laughs> about in the grab for dollars and, and who and who gets what. Uh, I Actually, I, I have, I've gotten to know Mark Johnson a, a little bit. I have a lot of respect for, for him. I, th I think he's done a really good job up there. But he's a partisan for his university, mm -hmm. just as you are for yours. Have you talked to Mark Johnson? Let's let's stop, let's not let this bog <laughs> us down. Have you, have you had these conversations? Not quite yet. We have had very pleasant conversations. <laughs> But uh, I, uh, on my list of to-dos is is a trip up to Reno for him and I to uh, to have a good conversation about collaborating to make us both better. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Well, we really appreciate your willingness to come on and talk so early in in, in, in your tenure. You didn't dodge too many of our questions, <laughs> and we we appreciate that. Uh, I hope you'll come back in a few months to, and talk about the progress. I'd maybe love right to. maybe right before the session, and we'll talk okay. we'll talk about uh, what's going on. Good luck to you. Sounds great. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle, thanks. For for coming to yes, as well. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment with Elizabeth Thompson. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast on the Nevada Independent. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent, but kind of in name only because the de facto editor, as always, is joining me, Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor and the person who really runs the places here. Hi, Elizabeth. You'll get no argument from me. Yes. Hi. I, I think I think yeah, everyone's nodding their heads as, as, <laughs> as they're listening uh, to this podcast. Um, we spent some time last week talking about an issue of the intersection of media and politics and transparency. And I want to continue that discussion this week because there was a big sensation uh, and, and the president reacted to this. Uh, and the Boston Globe essentially asked newspapers across the country to write press freedom uh, editorials uh, based on the president calling the media the enemy of the people and his a constant use of the term that I never say that uh, F blank blank E news. 
and and uh, uh, th- there was some commentary, by the way, that no one in Nevada decided to do this, and, and someone tweeted at me. And we don't do editorials. We're members of a group uh, of of uh, an online group that actually did publish something. But I think I think we we also just eventually decided. I went back and forth. I thought about publishing something, and 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 then we we decided not to. Jack Schaefer. Great columnist, media observer from Politico, essentially said, you're so dumb, media, you're playing into Trump's hands. He's always saying that you're essentially colluding against him, to use a word, uh, that he why, – why do this? Just do your jobs. And I think that's kind of our attitude, right? Well, yes, to a point. Um, and we try to do that here at the Nevada Independent in Nevada when we occasionally have to deal with elected officials who make us the target – of an attack instead of sticking with policy issues and what is or isn't true about how they voted or what they said or what the the case may be. But we have done some of our own work on this. I mean, as recently as last week, uh, you wrote a blog post, and we don't need to go into details this week on the podcast. People can just go check the Ralston Reports blog on the website, but about how we do have a couple of elected officials here in the state who have tried to make us a target, tried to make it kind of make the story about us instead of the story about the facts. And every time this happens, I question myself and kind of go back to that age old question of, you know, should the media itself ever be the story? Aren't we? We're the ones that write the stories. We're the ones that are supposed to say what's true, hopefully, in a way that's fair and accurate about what's going on so that the people reading us, many of whom are voters, can make informed decisions uh, about what they think and what they believe in and how they're going to vote. But since Trump has been in office, he's made the media part of the story um, because he won't stop talking about it and he won't stop accusing people, um, individual journalists, as well as entire news outlets. This is almost a this is a near daily occurrence with this man and with this administration. And so he's he's really got the media in a tough spot because, as you and I have talked about in the past, if, if you let enough allegations and accusations go unanswered, you know, are you are you acknowledging them? Are you laying down and forfeiting the fight? On the other hand, I, I agree with Jack Schaefer that the media did kind of play into Trump's hands and gave him an opportunity to point and say, look, they all you know, they are all in it together. See, I think that uh, I think there are many different levels uh, of this. Listen, the president has taken it to a new level, though, with the terms that he's using, calling the press the enemy of the people and, and saying and, and saying F blank blank E news to stuff he just doesn't like that, that happens to be true. And he has the biggest uh, a megaphone in, in the world to say this. It's very, very damaging. Polling shows how much this has damaged the media. Now, of course, the media has uh, has helped the cause by making some high profile mistakes, not just under the under the Trump era, but uh, under, un, under uh, a lot of different circumstances through the years, and they play on, especially with the Republican base, the so-called kid gloves treatment of Barack Obama versus how, or or, or Bill Clinton to, to some extent versus how Trump is being treated. Uh, and I don't want to get into all that. I, I think I think to some extent, a lot of these editorials that were written did say this, criticize the media. You should criticize the media. We want to be held to to account. Uh, I'll, I'll tell just a little story from from this week. And, and there, there were we published a story that turned out to be false. 
The story itself was false, not because the reporter uh, uh, had a bias or reported false information, but because a court document, a file-stamped court document, was was wrong. There was an administrative error. We corrected it as soon as we as we found out. But what's happening now, and this is what occurred, and I'm not even going to name names, and it's not even worth talking about. To, 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 this is not a partisan thing. Is that the operatives for for the for the elected official who was involved came out and attacked us? You said F blank blank E news said your article is 100% false. Correct it uh, when they knew it was not our error. But they were trying to smear us. Uh, and this is what's happening now. This is the Trump way. It's to say outrageous things uh, uh, were on someone's payroll, we're, we're biased, and that's why we wrote a certain story. Listen, bias creeps into, into, into coverage all the time. And, and I'll let you jump in here in a second. Um, but I think that some people think because I've been so outspoken about things over the years, again, I don't want to make this about me, but I, I think it's important for the Nevada Independent that we have a meeting every morning and I'm directing our report reporters to go, go hit this person, go hit, let's do a negative story on this person and a positive story. If only they knew, Elizabeth, yeah. what our meetings were really about. Our reporters are incredible at generating their own ideas. I don't mean this the way it's going to sound. We don't have to do much work in that area. Sure, they ask us for help, and, uh, but we are not telling them what to do. And they're not doing things that are necessarily going to please us in terms of what what, what candidates we, we, we like or don't like. It has nothing to do with that. And so what bothers me about this and, and this specific incident, and I brought up was they were attacking the integrity of a reporter who was just doing her job because they want to smear the media to create distrust uh, among the public with the media. That's very dangerous, a different level. Well, it's dangerous. It's annoying. And it's right out of the Trump playbook um, from the beginning. But look, this is a president. I mean, let's be frank, you know, who smears people regularly without providing any proof. He spins, he lies, he exaggerates on almost a daily basis. If you look at any number one, uh, any of his tweets, you could find something that's either completely not true or mostly not true. He never goes to the lengths to explain himself or provide any evidence or back things up. He just expects, you know, he wants everyone to just take everything he says at uh, face value. And at the same time, he's pointing fingers and trying to hold the media to his own standard, uh, which is, you know, what he likes and what he doesn't like. I mean, that's really what it comes uh, down to. And I'm so tired of hearing about the media bias. I mean, half the conservative media now can't stand him because he can't be trusted to tell the truth about anything on a, on a day-to-day basis. Criticism of the media is fair, but do it fairly and do it specifically. Don't just smear an entire organization because a mistake got made in a story or because some document was wrong and it took the reporter a couple hours to to figure it out. That's just that's disingenuous. It's mean spirited. And and I do think it's taking its toll uh, on the civic fabric here in Nevada and across the nation. I think some people will rightly say, and this occurs to me as you're saying, don't smear an entire organization. Well, you know, think about what Ralston does all the time with the Review Journal. He smears uh, the, an entire organization by criticizing them. And I have to but tell you. But that's not what you do. But, you, but, you criticize specific stories, specific columns, or specific series of stories, which I think are. That's your right to do that. Well, I, I've never. 
Yeah, go I, ahead. I think you're. I think you're. I generally, th- that is what I do, and I, I criticize much more news judgment based on the ownership there uh, th- than anything else. But I think I have been guilty of painting with too broad a brush, and some of the reporters over there have gotten upset with it, and I, and I need to be more uh, careful uh, about that. And there's no reason for the reporters over there to have to defend news judgment uh, made made above their pay grade or, or might uh, be, be 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 influenced. And whether or not I should be doing that or not, I'd be happy to have that. Debate debate with anybody who, who, who wants to have that debate. But I think that with the point you're getting to is right, though. It's And you use the right word. The smearing, it's not just of entire news organizations that Trump does. He's smearing the entire profession. And I'm not going to get up on my high horse about the media, but I will say something about us. We we are very, very happy to take criticism about something we, we've done. You know, why did you do this story when this other story is out there? Why didn't you put this uh, in your story? I'm even willing to accept criticism. Weren't you influenced by the fact that your major donor is X and, that, and, and, that's, and, and that's why you did this story? When I started this, and, and you and I discussed this a lot, we wanted to be transparent. Let the chips fall where they may. I don't know how many times I've said that. We, you know who our donors are. You know all the money that, that has been given. Every single penny is disclosed on the website. If you think we, our news judgment is influenced by that, I want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. Ask us but if I, that happens. But there's a different – I want to say something about what you just said. So choice of words, always very important, right? You said you you – you accept the criticism. I don't accept the criticism. Am I okay with hearing it? Sure. If somebody has a beef with any story we've written for any reason, I am happy to read their email or take their phone call or read their tweet. That doesn't mean I accept the criticism as valid. And especially on that issue of donors, as we talked about last week, um, I will never change my mind about this because I work with you and this team every day we don't let donors influence our content, period. We don't let our personal uh, views or political views or even whether we have a great relationship with a certain elected official influence our views. In fact, one thing that you and I often uh, do, this is very insider baseball, but I mean, you and I bend over backwards to comb through stories to make sure we are being fair? Are we looking at all the angles? Is this everything that could be said? Is a particular adjective a fair adjective to use in characterizing um, something? I mean, we really do hold ourselves to that standard, and so do the reporters. And so to your point about the profession of journalism, I don't know, a team that tries harder to get things right and to be accurate. Um, there's There can always be perceptions out there for one reason or another. But I do have to say from Trump on down to the Twitter trolls who only have five followers, the people who are just blindly and broadly attacking us or any other media outlet on some you know perceived basis that hasn't been substantiated. It's just nonsense. And as you can tell from my tone of voice, I'm just I'm so tired of it. And that's one of the reasons I didn't care frankly about writing about this this week because not only do I not want to be in lockstep, uh, with every other news publication in the country, there's plenty of outrage on this topic already where, you know, I don't think our voice is needed. I'm just tired of it. I want to do the work. What, let's talk about what stories we're going to write yeah. this week. Uh, you're absolutely right about all that. And I, but I, I guess my point was, and, and I didn't phrase it probably in the most artful way, I think criticism is healthy if it's, if it's criticism that is not designed uh, as, 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 as it's, it's a vehicle to try to, again, use the word smear. 
uh, uh, the, you know, killing the messenger is the oldest trick in 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 politics. And uh, I just want, I just think the problem that we have as a media is that you know we're perceived as so arrogant and above it all that we shouldn't have to take criticism. We were invested with this noble purpose. I hope we don't behave that way at at the Nevada Independent. I know none of my reporters are like that. I know you, you're you're one of the least arrogant human beings I've ever met, and people have accused me of being arrogant. I, I don't really care about that. In fact. Uh, maybe you'll disagree with this, and I know you'll jump in if you do. I don't really mind if people out there say Ralston's a real jerk, and did you see what he said on Twitter or what he wrote and what what he wrote in that column? But you look at their news pages; they're totally fair. I don't really mind if people say it. people want to think I'm a jerk. Okay, but that's fine. But l- look at the product that's being produced. And finally, let me just say this, and I'll let you have the last word on this because you and I could talk about this probably for hours. And uh, I wish we had more than water in front of us <laughs> when we were doing. But, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> but this but this canard of the liberal media being out to get Trump and, and the liberal media, uh, uh, yes, m- um, probably still true that there was the Bush era poll that showed like 85 percent of, of, of reporters voted for the Democratic, whatever that was. And that may still exist. But if you know how most reporters are, they're going to bend over backwards to be fair, which may end up making them actually unfair to the Democrat. And by the way, final word on this, Donald Trump can say this all he wants. Hillary Clinton and most fervent Clinton supporters hate the media. They hate the media because they think the media cost her the election by focusing on the email server. Uh, and, and, you know, th- th- there's a certain lack of self-reflection in, in all that. But, <laughs> but, but if we're so liberal, why did, why did the New York Times, New York Times wrote the email server stories, right, which many on the far left will never forgive them for. So there was much more of that effort uh, than, than I think people understand for people to go, to go the other way on their biases than to be guided by them. I don't know a single elected official, local, state, or national, who doesn't get upset with the press at some point because it's an easy target. I mean, unless you write a 7,000-word story, every time you write a story, some things have to be left out. It's a perfect example. How many times have I gotten emails over the years from elected officials because I left out some, in my estimation, fairly minor fact that they wanted mentioned and thought that, you know, I was being unfair because I didn't mention it? Well, that's part of the judgment that a journalist brings to a story, and you can't say everything all the time. I I think I want to close by actually giving a a positive example of some criticism we received from a reader some months ago, just to give people a sense of maybe what I consider to be a fair and valid criticism that actually I think made us better because it kind of led to a shift in uh, in the way we do things. So we had put uh, a quick blog post up about a campaign ad. And we didn't. We were very busy that day. We didn't say much about it. We basically just said, "Here's the ad. Here's the race it's in. Here's what it says. Here's the YouTube." Bam. That was it. Um, and because we have done so much fact checking so far, a reader got upset and said, "You know, th- this this blog post doesn't tell me anything. It tells me that the ad is out, and it tells me what the ad says. But I want to know: is this true? Is everything that's being said in the ad true? You guys didn't do your jobs." because you didn't fact check this for me, like, you know, why even bother? Now, initially, you know, I kind of wanted to push back and say, okay, well, I mean, reporting what an ad says is a valid story. But I also understood where the reader was coming from. Um, And so we ended up having an internal discussion about, okay, look, there's going to be a gajillion ads from now till November. How are we going to report them? Are we going to put them up first, just raw with a transcript, and then we're going to fact check them later? Or are we going to hold off and not write a story about them at all until we can fact check them a little bit and offer some context? That's kind of the direction we, we leaned in, and we've been trying to, to do that. So that's an example of a specific criticism from a reader who I think 
was being fair. Uh, and it helped us think a little bit more clearly from a reader's perspective about maybe how we should do something. That's the kind of criticism I welcome all day long. And we do get some of that, and, and, and it shows two things in closing. Number one, the, the high standard that we've set uh, that people expect us uh, to, 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 to um, uh, live up do to that. it every yeah. day. And, and the second thing is, is that we there, this isn't this was not some high profile person who said this. This was just a regular person, and that's what we want to do. Yeah, we want all of the the, the the cognoscenti to be reading us, but we also just want regular folks, normal people, to be able to learn. I, I, I say to my staff all the time, I want us to be the chroniclers of all these campaigns, so people can go back and look at all the ads. And but when we can, and we just put up another one today. It's Thursday on, on a Dean Heller ad, and inside that, uh, 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 Megan Messerly uh, showed. Uh, where, where, where the quotes were taken from. So th- that is a long way of saying, uh, and Elizabeth and I really want to talk about these issues a lot uh, on this podcast, I think, because in, uh, uh, maybe at some point we'll invite anyone who's listening to come and join us on one of those bar stools uh, when we can continue uh, the, 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 the conversation. <laughs> we should do a panel or something maybe yeah. at some point. I think people might be interested in talking about this. A happy hour sounds better than a panel, but uh, it can be a panel at happy hour. Fine. Okay. Anyway, Elizabeth, always great to have you. Thanks, thanks for coming on. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters Podcast. Remember, you can hear our interviews uh, every Thursday evening on KUNV 91.5 Jazz and More at 830. Uh, we want to thank all of you uh, for listening in, in both places. Uh, we also want to know what you think. Ideas, criticism, even praise. Email us at ideas at the nvindy.com. Uh, you can also just directly email me or Elizabeth or any of our reporters and check out the site thenevadaindependent.com. Rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can find us on Google Play and Stitcher and all kinds of other places. Tell everybody you know to listen to Indie Matters. As always, I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And last but never least, our thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer. He's also doing some new stuff for us, too. He's doing videos. You should check them out on the site. He makes us all sound, what is it, Elizabeth? Podcast Smooth. Ooh, that was one of the best podcast smooths you've ever done. Definitely in the top five. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Any Matters. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>